Amen. Well, good morning again. It's good to be here today at the Lord's house. Thank you so much, music team, for all the work that you put in to lead us so well. Each and every Sunday morning, we were talking a little bit in our equipping hour class this morning at nine o'clock. We were talking through Ephesians 5 and just talking about what, the, what a blessing it is to be able to come together and sing to one another and also to the Lord. And it's great for us to sing together and to confess to one another through song what we believe to be true about the gospel. And we've been able to do that this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we are continuing our walk through the birth narratives of Jesus and his relative John. And Jesus has now been born, and we are moving now into, towards the Messianic ministry of Jesus. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you're new with us here at Sunrise this morning, we just take a section of verses each week, and we move our way through the book. And eventually, it's going to take us a minute to get through the Gospel of Luke, because it's a long book. We'll take a break in the summer and do uh, Summer in the Psalms, which is a tradition that we do here in the summer at sunrise, but for the most part, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, so your Bible pretty soon here should just start falling open to Luke as we gather on these Sunday mornings. So the Gospel of Luke, and over the next couple of weeks, we get to explore the very, very, very few passages and verses that we have that are dedicated to Jesus after his birth and before what officially begins as the Messianic ministry, when he begins to preach and when he begins to do miracles and begins to challenge really, really, really tiny windows. So these verses are important for us to understand. And so this week, what we're going to look at is Jesus and the circumcision ceremony is briefly mentioned, and then we see the dedication at the temple. And then the next week, so this is Jesus as a baby, and the next week we get Jesus as a preteen as he goes to the temple. And he's 12 years old at this time. And really, those are the only insights that we get into the early life of Jesus. Now, wouldn't you love to know? I know in my curiosity, I would love to know a little bit more about all that was going on in the life of Jesus as a young boy and as a teenager. What was he like? What was he like as a little kid? Was he a good businessman when he started working and started having his own business and clients? And what was Jesus like? And we have to trust that the Lord has given us exactly what he wants us to have, because I know my curiosity could just run wild with all the questions I have about what was it like to be a friend of Jesus. Think about the family dynamics there. He had brothers and sisters. He had a family, very typical family. A few years ago, there's five of us in my family. There's five siblings. And a few years ago at Christmas, my mom gave us all coffee mugs that said mom's favorite. <laughs> now, only one of them was actually real. That was mine, of course. <clears throat> mom's favorite. Was Jesus mom's favorite? We never get any indication of anything like that. And it's really not a fair question to ask. A friend of mine asked me one time, it's like, which one of your kids is your favorite kid? I'm like, what kind of question is that? I'm not responding to that. You can't win there. We don't know about the family dynamics of what was going on. We just know that Jesus grew up, and we have a few verses here, and a little bit later that says he continued to increase in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man, and he grew up. It's very typical, very normal. 
So as we walk through this section, we're going to see a series of comparisons and contrast. So I always like to have an outline as we walk through text and scripture. It just helps me to keep on track, and hopefully it helps you as well. And I know for many of us that have been listening to churches and preaching that's similar maybe to what our church does, maybe sometimes you're, you hear a sermon or you're at another church or maybe somewhere else, and and if there's no outline, you feel like you're lost at sea. Does anybody ever feel that way a little bit? You just feel like there's just a sea of words and you can't quite figure out where your bearings are. Part of that's just because we've trained ourselves to sort of think this way. So an outline definitely helps. But the reason I bring that up is this morning, uh, there is an outline and we'll walk through the text, but it's not quite as linear as most of our outlines. So you'll see that as we move along. So we're going to see the early days of the Messiah. This week, Jesus as a baby, and it's really not so much about the things that Jesus said. Obviously, he's a baby at this point, but it's going to be about the things happening around Jesus in the early days of the Messiah, and then next week, we'll see Jesus as he begins to develop his own personality, and we see him at the temple and the early story of him being about his father's business at a very, very early age, so two fascinating stories. So let's look at it. Let me read. I want to start with verse 21, which is, it depends on the Bible that you're looking at, how the sections are broken down. You guys know that when you are looking at a text in the English text of our scripture, the paragraph headings were added later just for convenience. Chapter and verse divisions were added a little bit later. So I think if we back up to verse 21, it's above the paragraph, but I think it probably goes best with this particular section. But it was all written as one document, so it's not like it matters that much. So verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night 
and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All right, what a story. So series of contrasts and comparisons. Number one, we see two governments that are at work. This is really one of the undercurrents of the New Testament and particularly the Gospels as Jesus is interacting with people, both Gentile and Jew. We know that in Israel, at this point in time, Israel is in the land. Now, the land is a big, big deal in the Bible and in the Old Testament in particular. Israel's land is everything to them. This land was promised all the way back to Abram. Uh, He left the land. His people come back to the land. And so Israel's story is a story that they're bouncing in and out of possession of their promised land. And you've probably picked that up even in some of our psalm readings. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read Psalm 48, which is all about Zion or Jerusalem, the site of the temple, the greatest place in the world, viewed as the center of the world. In the new heavens, we see that, what's the name of the city that comes down out of heaven? The new Jerusalem, this new place. And so everything is about the land. So it's significant that the New Testament is set in the land of Israel, but there's a problem. So this is the first government. It's the, the, the people are in their land, but they're occupied by the Romans. And so they have these Roman sort of overlords. And so they'd reached this agreement in the first century, and it was a tenuous agreement. And the Jews had responsibilities. They had certain courts. They had a certain amount of autonomy and freedom, and they exercised within that. You see that in the trials of Jesus. There were six trials of Jesus, Uh, Three of those were Jewish trials, and three of them are Roman trials. And so you have the Romans who are overseeing the Jews, but you also have the Jews. And so you have these two governments that are sort of working together. And I'm sure part of the problems that they had was had to do with finances and who got what and how the temple ran and was that Rome's money or the Jews' money. And so they were constantly going back and forth. And so this is really the undercurrent that's helping set the stage for the first century and what's going on. They had been taken to Bethlehem because of a census given by a Roman ruler. So this census takes them to Bethlehem, but now we see it's the Jewish law that brings them to Jerusalem in order to have the circumcision and then the, according to the law of Moses, to have the purification of Mary after giving birth, which we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. So we have these two systems of government. And in some ways, really a careful study of the New Testament, it's almost a, a case study in how to live underneath secular authority in some real sense and way. So it really does have a lot to say to us. And we see Paul even appealing to Rome later in the book of Acts as he gets arrested. And the Jews are accusing him and the Romans are trying to let him off. And it's like the whole world is flips upside down. It's supposed to be the other way around because he's talking about the Messiah. So these two systems are at work. And now we see two ceremonies or rites, we could say, rite with a R-I-T-E, the rite of circumcision and then the rite of purification. Look at verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. 
circumcision. This becomes a big deal as well for the Israelite people. We discussed this a little bit back when we talked about the circumcision of John a few weeks ago. So if you're curious about that, you can uh, find that sermon on our website. Genesis 17, God instituted as a covenant promise was going to be circumcision of all the male children. And it wasn't optional. To be uncircumcised became a taunt. When David comes back and he finds that Goliath is tormenting the the people of Israel, he walks in and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who's this guy? He's not even a child of the covenant. And you guys are letting him own you out here on the battlefield? And he's incensed. And part of his insult is he's an uncircumcised Philistine. We got, why are you listening to this guy? Why are you letting him get away with this? And so circumcision was really, it was the identity of the people. And so they mention that it was on the eighth day. This comes from Leviticus 12. Now, I would be curious. I know some of you guys are doing the Bible in a year plan. I know many of you do that every year. If you're doing that, you're probably in Leviticus right now. I happen to be doing that plan myself, and so I'm in the middle of Leviticus, so this is fairly familiar territory. If you've ever just taken a minute, it'll take you more like an hour, and just sat down and read through Leviticus, you're going to feel like you walked into another planet. There are some strange things in there, and it all revolves around this idea of clean and unclean, and that's going to become a big, big part of what we see going on in our passage here. Book of Leviticus, it's all about the priesthood, how the people are supposed to live, And so Leviticus serves a very important function. At the end of the book of Exodus, the people of God have built the tabernacle to code, to spec, and the glory of God comes down on the tabernacle. This is at the end of the book of Exodus. Do you know what it says there? It says, and Moses could not enter the tabernacle because the glory presence of God was there. And the book ends. Well, they built this whole thing and they can't even use it. How are you going to use it? Well, you need Leviticus. We need a priesthood. We need directions as to how to navigate going in the tent and meeting with God. And so that's what Leviticus is all about. So it spells out how can man meet with God? It's through a mediator. So in part of that instruction, we have the instructions about circumcision. This was already codified for them in Genesis 17, as I mentioned. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So we're on the eighth day. That's where the eighth day comes from. And so this is exactly what happens here in Luke. All right, so that's the first one, circumcision. Jesus is subject to the normal law. Now we get into some interesting territory, which may or may not, you may may or may not know that these things are here and going on in the Bible, but it's very interesting. And we need to start talking about the category of clean and unclean and what that means. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now the purification had to do with Mary's purification after giving birth. So Jesus is born. He's born just like a regular boy. 
And because of that childbirth, he has caused his mother to be impure. This is how the system worked. Let me read a little bit more from uh, Leviticus. This is Leviticus chapter 12, verse 4. So we just read about the circumcision that happens on the eighth day. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her, pur- uh, of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Okay, so this is after you give birth, you are considered unclean or impure. Now, this is an important category in the Old Testament, and we need to talk about this for a second. In our thinking, we think unclean, we think sinful. That's not necessarily what was going on. You could become unclean through a number of different ways. Most of these had to do with things like body fluids and blood and also death. So you're a farmer and you go home this afternoon and you find your ox is out in the field and it has died. You need to do something about that. You need to bury it. At the moment you touch that ox, you are now considered unclean. You didn't sin, you have to deal with it. Same thing in battle. If you were in battle, you killed a person, you touched them, you're now unclean. Same thing if somebody died of natural causes, you deal with the body, you're now unclean. And so it's not that you've sinned, you needed to do those things, but you are considered unclean. Childbirth was the same way. When you gave birth to a child, you were considered unclean for a series of 40 days, the seven days plus the 33 that were mentioned here. Very, very interesting. And so this is what's going on. Now, this is also interesting. You were unclean, considered unclean for 40 days after having a male child. And I just want you to know that this is in the Bible. Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 5 But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. So it's basically doubled. So if you were unclean 40 days after having a male child, it's 80 days after you had a female child. Now, to our modern sensibilities, we're like, well, that's not fair. That's sexist, right? 40 days for the male, 80 days for the female. Some of you can turn that around. It's like, because women are so much better than men. That's why this is twice the amount of time. There's all kinds of different theories as to exactly why. The reality is God hasn't told us why. One is 40, one is 80. Um, Could be that this is sort of a stand-in for the circumcision ceremony because she was a female, so there was the extra time allotted. Maybe there was a stigma attached to Eve since she was the one who was deceived in the garden. That's some early Jewish commentators take that view. I think it probably speaks to the ability of the daughter's future fertility and ability to have children as well. Probably something to do with that. But the reality is we don't have all the details for us in that. So all this to say, they're just following the law. They're just doing exactly what normal Jewish people did at that point in time who wanted to be obedient to the law of God. They have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, according to Leviticus 12. Mary comes and she presents Jesus according to Leviticus 12 and according to the the other laws that we have uh, dealing with that. Now, continue on. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, 
Every male who first opens the womb shall be holy, called holy to the Lord. This is uh, from Exodus 13. You remember this is tied to Pharaoh, and it's tied to the taking of the firstborn. And it's during these events that God says, every firstborn I claim in a unique and particular way. And so there would be a redemption of that child that was required. It strikes us a little bit odd, but that is how the whole system worked. Okay, so verse 24, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Now we have a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so this is the last of the ceremonies that are mentioned. Pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now in the law, in Leviticus, the requirements of the sacrifice, there were two options. You could either bring a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So you could bring burnt offering and sin offering. It could be a lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon. Or if you were poor, you had the option just to bring two birds, two turtle doves or two pigeons. And so that's probably what this is there for, to let us know that Joseph and Mary, they are not particularly well off. And we talked about that with the swaddling cloths a couple of weeks ago, that being wrapped in swaddling cloths, it doesn't mean they were poor, just meant that they were, that was like standard operating procedure for the time. That's just what you did. And so these are the two ceremonies that happen. What's the point of these ceremonies and us talking about them today? I think part of what Luke is doing here in this section is he is pointing us to this faithful remnant of people. A lot of this gospel is going to deal with opposition to Christ. There's going to be a lot of people that don't appreciate Jesus, don't appreciate his, his ministry. And so he's pointing us that there was a faithful remnant. There always has been, there always will be a faithful remnant. Here we have a mom and a dad. And then we're going to meet these other two people, Simeon and Anna, who are just faithfully waiting on the Lord to work. It also points us to the reality that Jesus, as Paul says later in Galatians 4, Jesus was born under the law, just like all people at that time were. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus identifies with his people as one born under the law from the earliest of days, when he couldn't even make these decisions. He's born under the law. All right, now let's look at these two witnesses Two witnesses. We have Simeon and Anna. Simeon. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this man, Simeon, he's waiting for God to come. He's waiting for the Messiah to come. And we're not told that he's a priest. We're actually not told that he's old, although we can infer that from what is said here, that he's not going to die until he sees this. In verse 29, that you're letting your servant depart in peace probably means he's soon to die. So he's probably older, but we don't know for sure. So he meets the baby takes the baby in his arms, and he is so excited. 
verse 28, he took him up in his arms. He blessed God and said, Lord, now. This is the title of this song. Nunc Dementis, Lord, now. You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He writes this little song about Jesus coming. He says he's going to be a light to the Gentiles and he's going to be glory to the Jews. Light to the Gentiles. We see these two groups of people. The hope that Simeon expresses is really profound. I remember, many of you guys will remember Bob Burns a few years ago, part of our church uh, family here. I remember talking to Bob one time. He had cancer and he knew his days were not long here. And I remember sitting down at lunch with him at Beach Diner just down the street. And he said, I really want to see my daughter get married before I die. That's what I really want. And the Lord was so gracious to him, he not only was able to see that, he was also able to see his grandson be born. His daughter got married, had a grandson. It was just fantastic. He ended up living longer than he expected to. So we understand a sense of longing, of wanting to see completion here on the earth, and we can identify with that. This man is longing to see something happen, and then he sees it in Jesus, the Messiah. There's mention also of, let's go ahead and talk about this other witness, this prophetess named Anna. Now, there was a prophetess, Anna, verse 36, Anna or Anna, and she's old at this point says she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years while she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Now, there's a little bit of a translation issue around this. Depending on what version that you're looking at, it might say that she was 84 years old, or it could say she lived as a widow for 84 years. That's probably the preferable reading. So if you do the math on that, she's very old, because you probably would have been married somewhere around 15 years old. Seven years, she's married to her husband. 84 years, widowed. I know it's Sunday morning. Y'all ain't used to doing math on Sunday morning. So that's 106. Very old. She's very old at this point. Life expectancy around that time was somewhere around 30 years old. So, and that's partly adjusted, obviously, because infant mortality was much higher, people dying in battle, things like that. So there were older people around, but the, this, is, this is really amazing. And I asked, uh, I asked JB before the service, I said, how old do you have to be to be old in our culture? And I'm going to blame this on him. He said, somewhere around 70, maybe. I said, okay, I'll go with that. So I don't know where you fit yourself, and I'm, I'm hiding behind JB at this point for if, how you define yourself. I'm not going to speak any more to that. Is there anything more encouraging in life than godly old people, however you want to define that? Is there anything greater than godly old people? I hope that you had a chance, if you're older now, to be around and hang out with godly old people 
And I hope that our youngsters amongst us will find godly old people who trust the Lord, faithful servants of God. We do a weekly Bible study with some of our gentlemen that are able to be here, nine o'clock Wednesday morning. And again, I know I'm getting myself in trouble when I start trying to define what's old or not. There is no line that you cross. So our weekly Bible study, I asked one of the guys one time in the morning, like, How's it? how are you doing? He said, well, other than the leukemia and the collapsed lung, I'm pretty good. I'm like, okay, I don't have any problems today. My day is just fine. But just to see the steady resolve to trust in the Lord, no matter what. And that's exactly what we see with this lady, this prophetess. I think about my grandmother, my dad's mom. She was all of five feet tall in heels. And she was this sweetest lady, and she would wander around the kitchen, and I just always remember her humming and singing hymns. And it's just who she was. There is, there is nothing more encouraging than godly older people who have walked with the Lord a number of years. Now, my grandmother, she probably could not have diced up the latest theological debate that's going on at the conferences. Probably couldn't have helped you out with that. But she could tell you what it meant to trust in the Lord. She could tell you how to pray. She could point you to Christ. And it's just so incredibly encouraging. I just want to mention that to say, really, things to two groups of people. If you're younger, you put yourself in that category here today, find some old people and hang out with them. Just listen. Just watch. And for all you smarties that are out there, if y'all all come talking to me after the service, we're going to have words. Find some older people, find some people ahead of you, and just hang out, talk to them, listen, listen to their trust in the Lord. If you would consider yourself in the older category here this morning, let me just encourage you with a couple of things as well. Don't underestimate the value of presence. You, I, I know people sometimes struggle because they're maybe not able to do all the things that you used to be able to do, running the ministries, going 100 miles an hour, doing all the things that you used to do. Your presence is powerful. Just being there, just showing up. It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful example. And I would just encourage you with that. Your prayers, being around, writing cards, singing, praying, it's a valuable, valuable thing. And I, I think we maybe don't value that enough in our society. So here we have this older lady. She's either in her 80s or well over 100, I think probably well over 100, and she's not departing from the temple. She just wants to see God come, the Messiah come, this long-awaited promise. She's anxious to see it, and she gets to see it. Look at what happens, verse 38. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's so excited. She's running around the temple. She's just telling everybody, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. And she was a fixture at the temple at that time. It says she didn't depart. She was always there. Perhaps she was even living there, some sort of apartment kind of thing attached to the temple complex. Or maybe it just means that she was just a fixture, just got up and that's where she went. That's what she did with her day, is just spent the day at the temple, fasting, praying, longing to see God work. These two witnesses, 
These two witnesses come to two different people groups. And the message of the gospel goes to these two people groups, to the Jews and the Gentiles. We'll talk more about that in a future day. I want to cut and go straight to this last piece here, these two responses. These two responses that we see. Look at verse 33. And this is back to Simeon's story. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. That's that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is posed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. There are two responses to the message of Jesus. Simeon prophesies that this is how it's going to go. Some are going to be raised up. Some are going to be put down. Some are going to love the ministry of Jesus and then prefiguring what's going to happen ultimately at the crucifixion. A sword's going to pierce through your own soul as well. And I think this speaks to those who are parents and especially mothers watching a child suffer. I think this is really, Mary was going to feel this acutely, and she's warned about this very, very early on. Again, remember, she's a teenage mom, most likely, at this point, 14, 15, 16, somewhere in that ballpark, and she's being given this huge weight of responsibility and information. Two responses. Jesus is going to have a tumultuous ministry that starts in just a couple of chapters. Some are going to rise, some are going to fall. You know, the reality is still the same today. There's really only two responses to Jesus. Only two responses. You can follow him or you can reject him. There's a lot of people want to sit in the middle. I'm just kind of thinking it through. I want to take some more time, which I understand that. But ultimately, to not be a follower is to reject him, at least for a season of time. Some are curious and want to know more. Don't procrastinate long on that question. You don't know how long you have to answer it. We don't know. The rising and the falling of many. Two responses. Which way are we going to respond? Are we going to be followers? Are we going to reject the Messiah? Today we have an opportunity to celebrate communion. We always do this on the first Sunday of the month. And as we've been reading about these rites and rituals that were connected to the law, you can start to build out a sense of what it was like to be a worshiper in the first century. There was the temple and the compound and the activity and the, the sacrifices and the altars. It was really, really ornate. And yet we come today and, far as I can tell, nobody's brought any sacrifices with you. Nobody has bulls or goats that are tied up in the parking lot that we're going to bring in later. Nobody brought in turtle doves to be sacrificed today for a guilt offering or a sin offering to be clean. We don't do any of those things. And so the question then is, well, why don't we do any of those things? It's in the Bible, right, that we should bring these offerings. Well, the answer, of course, is because Jesus has come and he's the final perfect offering. All of those sacrifices were leading us to one final sacrifice. And that sacrifice has been made, and so we don't make sacrifices anymore. We don't come today to make a sacrifice. We come to recognize the sacrifice that was made on our behalf, and that is through Christ. Hebrews ten fourteen, For by a single 
offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering, just one. Just think about all the offerings that would take place on a given day at the temple. Hundreds, thousands. It was amazing. Everybody that was impure, everybody that had touched blood, if you'd had a baby, there were all kinds of different ways of being impure, unclean, and you had to make a sacrifice. And then Jesus comes and he puts an end to all of it by one sacrifice. That's it. And so today, as we take communion. As our church, we take communion. We call open communion is our practice in church history. There are different people, different denominations, and church traditions have taken communion in different ways. We choose to take communion, and we offer communion to anyone who is here this morning who identifies himself as a follower of Jesus Christ. We invite you to participate with us. You don't have to be a member of this particular local church, but you are welcome and free to participate with us. If you are here this morning and you're just thinking this through, um, you don't know exactly if this sacrifice has been applied to you, you don't know exactly what you believe, we just ask you, just watch. Um, just, just watch. Take this time to, to listen, to reflect, to pray, and just observe. And then uh, we would love to have a conversation after the service with you. Well, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and I'll invite our musicians to come up and also our servers who will be bringing the elements to you in just a moment. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to be together today, and we do thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf so that we can be made right with you. Lord, we don't come today to offer our own sacrifices. We come to recognize the sacrifice of Jesus that has been made on our behalf And so, Lord, we pray that we would be fully trusting, fully committed to Christ today, and it would be a time of joy and a time of renewal of our commitment to live for you, to remember what you've done for us. We thank you for the extraordinary way that Jesus came in such an ordinary way, of all the ways that we could dream up of God to come into human flesh and make a splash appearance on earth. It was three very normal ordinary means, so that he could be the high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so, Lord, we're here today to celebrate the gospel and what you've done on our behalf. We praise things in Christ's name. Amen.